Welcome on here to a little bit later than that time of year as it normally would due to uh, the intervention of nature but we are a little late fortunately none of the actual winners have come out yet on these awards we're going to get to just about everything today except some of our own made-up awards and six man which requires a lot of research and i didn't have time to do it and we will get to that next week let's begin though danny with the mvp i want to take a beat to appreciate how strong the cases are for these top three players this year and that i i don't have the i didn't do the digging on whether these all three of these guys would have won the mvp in all of the last five years or anything like that all i could say is they all have really strong cases and that made it hard to differentiate and you can you know it's also fascinating because while you can think of Jokic. Giannis and Embiid as as bigs because in many ways they do function that way they thrive in different kind of parts of the game but also they all have really important offensive profiles and I think Giannis is in particular is underappreciated there but they also all provide a defensive value this year too and that's a huge part of the case for Jokic and I can get into as much detail as people want but and then you know I spent time on this but what I thought is the kind of for me the place to start is the reason I'm pick Jokic to me needed the defensive improvement that he's made this year to get first place on my ballot which he did yeah i think it's clear to me that Jokic is the best offensive player between these three candidates uh, yes uh, i wholeheartedly and, agree and, I, and, and and let's let's get into that and by the way quickly before we do that even my criteria is essentially who contributed the most to his team winning basketball games this year. That's that's all that I am looking at. And then my tiebreaker, if it's just so close that there really isn't a great argument either way, I will look at who I think is better and give the tiebreaker there. Nikola Jokic to me, I don't think he's better than Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo or Kevin Durant is the best player in basketball. We did our top 10 players a couple of weeks ago and I came to that conclusion. But Nikola Jokic just had an absolute tour de force of a season, one of the best regular seasons in memory. I mean, just some of his some of his stats are completely insane. I think people have kind of lost this in the photo a little bit of how good his stats are. And to me, basically any stat you want to look at, <laughs> he has a massive edge on Giannis and Embiid, I would say, other than just raw scoring points exactly and i mean Jokic, all these guys incredibly high usage so and usage doesn't consider you know that that doesn't kind of that's not full playmaking but it's a big part of it and Jokic, in terms of pure usage is actually the lowest but 66 percent true shooting is jaw dropping and Jokic ended up having the best per ever at at 32.8 and for me the most impressive isn't even an individual stat it is the Denver Nuggets having a 118.5 cleaning the glass offensive rating when Jokic was on the floor. This team does not have that many high-end creators. They don't even are, have... Are, are you not giving the credit to Will Barton and, and Monte Morris, their second and third best offensive players this year? I am not. You don't, you don't and, think they, they're the ones driving that? I mean, not only was it Jamal Murray missing the entire season, which we expected, but also Michael Porter Jr. missing basically the entire season and being straight up bad when he played. Changed this... Changed this and Jokic in other years there had been this discussion about is he the most valuable offensive player in the league he was firmly in the discussion including last year when he was both of our pick for regular season MVP this year I don't think there's an argument that anyone else was even close yeah with the defensive improvement in particular certainly I'd rather have Joel Embiid as a playoff defender oh and by the way when I was saying that I was saying most valuable offensive player only that was just oh sorry sorry yes okay that was just like to me as great as some of the other guys are 
will give plenty of honors to other guys. Jokic is the most valuable player in the league, no hesitation this year. Most valuable yeah. offense player. Yeah, for from an offensive standpoint, I, I'm in total agreement there. And I mean, you mentioned the scoring, right? We're talking 32 usage and 66% true shooting. Now Giannis is 35 usage and Embiid is 37. But uh, even as a scorer, I think Jokic has an argument for being as valuable as those guys are. And then you throw in that he's maybe the best passer in the league. And then his offensive rebounding is easily the most valuable of these guys as well. I think he, even though he shot not quite at where he's been from three at 34%, I still think he's more valuable as a floor spacer and an off-ball player than either of these guys either on the sure. chance. Uh he if he if he yeah. were able to play with those sorts of players this year, yes, that would be that would be even yeah. more but useful than it was. Even then though, like he'll he'll make some moves to cut off the ball and surprise oh, yeah. guys. It's incredible. And get open. You, you know, he's it's just fantastic. And then you look at the defense, you really can't make like I was starting to say earlier. Clearly, to me, Embiid is the better defender just in a vacuum and in a playoff setting. And I would assume that Embiid would be better going forward. But Nikola Jokic, statistically, there really is not much of a difference between him and Embiid this year. Looking at the overall impact metrics, certainly Embiid is a, a better rim protector than he is. But Jokic doesn't hurt your transition defense, I don't think, as much as Embiid does necessarily. And so Giannis is certainly a more valuable defensive player. And I think if Giannis had had the defensive year and the Bucs had had the defensive year that they've had in the past, number one, the Bucs would have been a 60-win team this year, right? And that, that's the other thing, right? You, you talk about the individual players' candidacies, like the team candidacies, you don't see it. There isn't a candidate on some league juggernaut because the Suns are kind of a differently built team and they really they and maybe Memphis are the only teams that were over 55 wins this year so I think Giannis wasn't as valuable enough defensively to tip the balance in his favor and then Jokic also played almost 200 more minutes than either of the other guys as well you, you could throw I, that I in will there. I will say that I am thrilled this my MVP ballot did not come down to minutes played that no, the person it, who it I didn't for me either and because that would have felt unsettling considering how strong these cases are to just have it have it resolved that way and Jokic having the strongest case to me and playing the most minutes made it yeah. significantly more And the more most film. games, too. Like, he played sure. yeah, you value, six you, you more and seven before. more than Giannis and Embiid. And sure. I, I tend to weight games more than minutes in this. That's, that's totally fair. Uh, so how did you balance it between Giannis and Embiid? This is another one where I thought the statistical resumes were very, very similar in a lot of the impact metrics, for example. By the way, Jokic was number one in EPM. Embiid is number two at 7.9. Giannis is number three at 7.3. That's not a huge difference, I would say. If you look at Raptor, Jokic is crazy number one. A lot of that comes from his defense, which is overrated. Raptor has Jokic as like the most valuable defense player in the league, which is obviously ridiculous. But still... He was plus 14.8 in Raptor. Embiid was number two at 8.0. Giannis is number three at 7.9. So again, no significant difference there. Looking at some of the efficiency numbers, the usage the on-off, all close enough that I don't think Embiid has so much better of an argument. And I think Giannis Antetokounmpo is better. And so that's why I went with him at number two in a very, very close race over Joel Embiid. Their minutes were within 100 of one another as well. I just think Giannis is better than Embiid is. That That's what it ultimately boiled down to. It was a close argument. And I think that Embiid's defense at times this year has been underappreciated. And 
like Jokic, at times Embiid has had to elevate more limited talent than we expected because Ben Simmons, one of the team's best players, was not all, not playing with the team at all. But Giannis had that time early in the season where he was elevating when when Drew and Chris both missed time. And I just I, I thought it was close, but I did think that Giannis's argument was more persuasive. The the role that he had within the offense in terms of volume was actually pretty similar. And and Giannis, to me, what you, I brought up how Jokic's defensive improvement was a, a central part of him winning MVP this year. Giannis's improved playmaking was a central part in him passing Jokic this year because one of the differences, 6.3 assists per 36 minutes versus 4.5, and their turnover numbers are pretty similar, which means you know, Giannis is converting more of those into passes and assists than, than Embiid is. And Embiid gets to the line a ton, but so does Giannis. And Giannis was up to 72%, not not where Embiid is, but as an individual scorer, Giannis was slightly more efficient this year. And I'm sympathetic. I, I think that Giannis's defense, the defensive argument for him has been, I've been banging this drum all year, has been a little bit underappreciated just because it's, it's kind of some hard, sometimes hard to apportion credit. I he he will not be firmly in my defensive player of the year conversation, but I think that his case there is 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 credible and strong. We can now move on to after the top three. And what I found fascinating about this conversation was you had a lot of different kinds of cases and a lot of players that didn't have like a great full year or didn't have a complete case. And that's actually how I ended up with my number four. And the way I described it, I was I did a little write-ups for the MVP thing, is this is going to be a cross-board analogy that I, I don't recall ever seeing before my argument for Jason Tatum at number four is sort of like the gymnastics all around where I don't think Tatum's argument is the best in any individual element of some of the other people that he's competing with. And I'm sure we'll run through some of those, but he is stronger in the weaker elements than the other people are. And he played a ton of minutes and that does matter here. I mean, you Tatum playing 76 games, Tatum playing 36 minutes per contest. That helps because being on the floor is value. And like you, I think you have persuaded me on this over time that games played is in many ways more valuable than minutes per game, though it can be a tiebreaker there. And so for Tatum, I mean, he had this really good year. If you want to do the kind of the basic numbers that we all often cite, 58% true shooting on 32 usage. Also, and by the way, just a quick reminder, league average true shooting this year is right in the 55% or so range. It's about where it's been. It's a little bit down, I think, from previous years. I mean, I'll double check that. Actually, I haven't looked at that at the last couple. But Tatum also 4.4 assists per 36 minutes. And while it is, and this will come up later, Boston's defense, number one in the league, is apportioning credit there is very difficult. At absolute worst, Jason Tatum was an important part of the league's best defense. And that is huge for the, for this conversation. And so I kind of had Tatum in a sub-tier of his own over a lot of the other guys. And then it became just an absolute fight. Yeah, but can you really give it to Tatum when he struggled so much on parallel bars? <laughs> yeah, I had Tatum number four as well and the impact metrics were just too difficult to ignore and some of those for example number one in the nba in net rating 12.1 among players who average more than 25 minutes per game on off differential number two in the nba behind Jokic among players who played more than a thousand minutes plus 16.5 Jokic was plus 19.5 which went down over the course of the year at one point i think the last time we did this it was 25 for Jokic. so that was pretty ridiculous right up there in the metrics that, that we like to look at he was number eight in the nba in epm but number three in the nba in their estimated wins which takes into account 
playing time as well so his individual statistical numbers are not quite there offensively for me just a little bit above average in terms of true shooting he's only 35 percent from three which is the number one argument his three-point shooting on how he breaks the defense and makes things easier for his teammates but certainly the celtics were so much better on offense and defense when he played and all in subtle ways which you would anticipate him contributing to there wasn't any real huge amount of shooting luck in those numbers from what i could see and also jason tatum if you look at our apm which doesn't have a box score component it solely looks at on off when you're on the floor versus off the floor adjusting for teammates and stuff he's number one in the nba an rapm from nba shot charts and number one in the nba in luck adjusted rapm which adjusts for things like your team's three-point shooting and opponents three-point shooting variability and free throws so they're really the argument in the end particularly because the Celtics were so good when he was on the floor because he played so much you just couldn't overlook it anymore even though I don't think that he's at this level as a player if we're doing top 10 players and I don't think he's the same level of offensive force of some of these other guys you just the statistical argument was just too powerful to ignore at this point particularly because no one below him uh, they all or everyone below him had some pretty serious warts in their candidacy as well they did and I want to acknowledge he didn't get my number five spot that Kevin Durant came closer than I anticipated that's how good he was in the the 55 games that he played and because also because Durant played an insane 37 minutes per game so he actually in terms of totals was closer and he was amazing this year also I consider Devin Booker who especially with that the kick that he had with Chris Paul off off the floor that the Suns just kept on winning until they took their foot off the gas pedal at the very 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 end considered him but really for me the last spot ended up being between two different players that in certain ways have very similar resumes and in certain important ways have very different ones and that's the always tied at the hip Luka Doncic and Trey Young the argument in favor of both of them is that they have this ludicrously high heliocentricity within their offenses so like Luka 37 usage and 8.9 assists per 36 minutes Trey Young 34.4 usage and 10 assists per 36 minutes. Trey Young became the second player in NBA history to lead the league in total points scored and total assists along with Tiny Archibald. And originally I actually had Trey here. And part of it was because the logic that part, part of why the Hawks had so had a worse record than a lot of these teams is because they weren't nearly as good when Trey Young was off the floor. I do not hold that against the MVP candidates at all. I don't think that's fair. But the other part of why the Hawks were below the Mavericks is that they sucked on defense. And I think that Trey Young was not the only reason, but an important reason why the Hawks sucked on defense this year. Whereas Luka not only was on a successful defense, Dallas ended up the year in eighth place there, but he was a, even if it was a faint positive, he was significantly more of a positive than Trey Young. So I ended up going Luka five, Trey theoretically six, I guess. Yeah, I definitely had Luka Doncic as uh, number five on my 2022 MVP ballot. Unfortunately, this is the 21. 122 NBA season, <laughs> not the 2022 NBA season. And for the 21-22 NBA season, I thought that Stephen Curry was frankly a pretty obvious choice Ooh. for number five. And he's also going to be an ob- the my number one candidate at guard he's my he's my number one guard as well i'll say that now and i mean his stuff is he played so much less 
than Luka Doncic. Like Steph has played basically the same number of minutes as Luka. Uh, he's played fewer than Trey, and, and that's a big part of, of Trey's uh, argument as well. 76 games played for Trey versus 65 for Luka, 64 for Curry. And Steph Curry does not have the same points and assist numbers and the same usage as Trey and Luka. That's certainly true but if you look at any kind of on off metrics i mean can you find one to me that ranks trey young or luka Doncic ahead of stephen curry if we're talking just about offensive raptor curry is third among those guys um and then curry passes well okay but, I, but over, overall impact just for the technically entire... luka technically yeah. luka's ahead of him in raptor but it's very close um okay. and then yeah and then M- for... maybe that's one but but so so here i, I like EPM, get into this a epm bit. has yeah. curry let's say off offensive epm has Trey over Curry and then Curry over Doncic. Yeah. Well, and, and but overall EPM, Curry is ahead of them in yes. estimated wins. And I, I, I was thinking about this a little bit more. At Steph Curry, a lot of his credit comes from the defensive end and yes Steph Curry is not an unbelievable defensive player but I do think there is something to the idea that you can put better defensive players around the around Stephen Curry on the floor and get away with a Gary Payton the second or an Andre Iguodala or a Draymond Green or a Kevon Looney playing with Steph Curry in ways that you can't as well with Trey or Doncic because those guys kind of operate one way offensively it's got to be spread pick and roll if those guys have a second non-shooter on the floor with them it's kind of it's not going to work nearly as well like that's just the way they play they need to have three shooters on the floor and probably a role man i think luca can get away with it a little bit more than trey and we you know to their credit those teams have put those groups around them but i think when you have to have that level of shooting on the floor that does potentially come at a defensive cost when you whereas steph curry you can start draymond green and kevon looney and you're still going to be totally fine offensively because of the grab that he has the off-ball stuff that he can do in a way that you wouldn't with Trey Lucas. So that's something to think about, at least. Yeah, you, and, and, I, I, yeah. Ha- I think I had undersold Curry's case because he missed so many games at the end of the season that I had yes. thought he had missed more time. <laughs> but no, his 64, 64 games, 34 and a half minutes per game, yeah. that is... Compared to Luca, that is roughly the same. Like they're they're twenty three hundred minutes versus twenty two eleven. I think that's close enough that it's not really a big thing. And then Trey has played more, but yeah, I'm 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 I moved Steph. I had him seventh. I'm moving Steph Curry up to fifth. So so get, get, let me give you since we're, this is the same debate that we're gonna have for all NBA guards as well. I could continue. Yeah, to, we might as well just do it now, once since, since you started it. But as of New Year's Day. Luka Doncic, the Mavs had a 5.5 net rating when he was on the floor. When he was on the floor, the team offensive rating was a 106 in the 21 games that he played before New Year's, and he missed a bunch of time there as well. Now, part of that wasn't his fault. They were just shooting atrociously. And when they moved on from Porzingis and they got Dinwiddie, who was shooting the lights out, and Reggie Bullock rediscovered his jumper, and Tim Hardaway Jr., who wasn't hitting shots, uh, ended up getting hurt, that obviously helped Luke as well. And after New Year's, plus 7.7 net rating, 117 offensive rating in the 44 games that Luca played after New Year's. So it's basically one-thirds, two-thirds. Still only 58% true shooting, even during that period. So his overall for the season is a 3.5 net rating. And also worth noting that Luca, his 
luck adjusted RAPM this year was negative. Well, that I guess just... that ties in. Remember that we, that we did that NBA strategy stream early in the year where he had the he had the worst plus minus on the team, right? At that point, yeah, and he he came in out of shape and his defense was terrible for the first few months of the year as well he was inefficient so that's just that's part of the season i'm sorry and steph curry when you look at him by contrast among players who played over a thousand minutes sixth in the nba sorry seventh in the nba 13 points per 100 better when he's on the floor the warriors were and two of the guys above him were yusuf nurkic and kenrich williams who only have that designation because their teams tanked like crazy whenever they weren't on the floor so really he's fifth in the nba there it's Jokic, tatum darius garland kevin durant steph curry um yeah i realized the idea that they're overly dependent on curry and they haven't saw backup point like jordan Poole is a pretty damn good backup point guard like, he's better than a lot of these guys are and some of it comes from the defense with curry as well but that's because again you could get away with more of these defensive players when you've got stuff out there whereas if you have another point guard you got to go more offense so yeah that that's why i ended up with curry and let's turn just let's roll right into the all nba guards and stuff i had number one and then it came down to trey versus luca for me for my second first team all nba guard slot and Again, I think uh, Trey Young, particularly because he played 11 more games than Doncic, I had him on, on first day. I know you don't wait games played as much, but, and, and I, you know, I don't penalize Luka for 65 games. Like 65 games basically is a full season these days. And, but if you could be out there for 76 games, and if Trey Young doesn't play 76 games, the Hawks certainly don't have home court advantage might not even be in the play-in if he missed more games than that so so that really mattered and I think when you look at the individual statistics for example Trey to me is a little bit better and Luca in most of these areas a little bit better true shooting a little bit better passing numbers offensive numbers when the team is on the floor is better overall net rating pretty close Luca's 3.5 Trey is I think 2.3 yeah that's, like, I believe about, that's right but what difference of one there so and I think you'd have to say that particularly with a lot of the Hawks injury issues this year that Luca had a little bit more talent around him I definitely think Luca is the less damaging defensive player by quite a large factor but and I think Luka Doncic is a better player than Trey Young for sure but I think I was still going to go with Trey Young first team uh and if Luca if Luca had just played the way he played after January all year he would be above Steph he'd be above Trey but he didn't he didn't and I I'll just reiterate this for people who are less familiar. My approach to all NBA teams is that as long as you meet the basic threshold of playing half your team's games, so we're back to an 82 game season, that's 41. I'm straight up most outstanding. So I don't care. It's not a, it's not an advantage for me if you play more games, as long as I think the sample is, is reasonable. I went with Luke over Trey. I, you know, I bounced back and forth in terms of both MVP and all NBA and thinking of them as different things made it a little bit harder in certain respects. But defense was an important element of this for me, as as I, I know I did that lead work before you convinced me I had Luca higher in MVP. And that was a harder case for me because Trey played so much more. And so I, I had it that way. And then let's take some time to appreciate Devin Booker. Devin Booker, my last, the, the other second team guard for me, and that can lead into some of the other discussion with the other guys. But Devin Booker had a fantastic year. 27 points per game, 58% true shooting on 32 usage. So that's pretty similar to Jason Tatum actually almost identical to Jason Tatum well and then a little bit better than Tatum in terms of assists where so for comparing those guys 5.1 versus 4.4 and 
also part of the reason that Devin Booker is here, I mean, is that the unbelievable clutch performance of him individually and the Suns collectively. I mean, Devin Booker overall, only 29.5 usage during those situations. But part of that's because they had this other guy, Chris Paul, who's going to factor in a second. 71% true shooting plus 40 net rating for the Suns in close games when Booker was on the floor. Yeah, that that's with Booker out there. And yeah, I, between the last three candidates here for me, which were Booker, Paul, and John Morant, I mm-hmm. really didn't have a great opinion either way. I went with Ja as my second, second team guard. And just the overall numbers, which was going to come up in another category too later on, are just so ridiculous. And I think it's just kind of easy to forget that. And I don't think that he should be penalized because Memphis played well when he wasn't out there. And a lot of that was shooting luck related, playing against tanking teams, though they were very good without him too. They were a, a very good team even without John Morant to be sure. And yeah, he's only going to end up having played 57 games, but he missed these last couple of weeks and it didn't matter because they already were had the two seed basically wrapped up at that point. And I would guess that he would have played more of those games if they actually mattered. Based on how good he looked when he came back, I think that is a reasonable judgment to make. Yeah, and particularly because if he were really that injured, they would have just held him out so that he could get essentially three straight weeks of rest with this knee soreness. So I'm not, as far as I'm concerned, he played about as much as Paul and Booker and just some of these numbers are just really really insane for a point guard like him who drives to the basket all the time he's just up in every category John Morant ninth in the NBA in PER which is hard to do for a guard 58% true shooting 57.5 so he gets the round up Mm -hmm. 34 usage where he's not as ridiculous as in some of the on-off stuff but that is because his teammates played very well without him and they're a deep team so I'm not they were still very very good when he did but play it, and jaws def- the defensive element of it he's weaker than the other two for sure how important yeah. you want to say that is open to interpretation yeah uh he was a big jaws big contributor on the glass this year as well even even on the offensive glass improved his three-point shooting up to 35 percent improved his three-point rate i realize this is not a most improved argument but i mean they were just a devastating team when he was out there and i think a lot of us just overall have kind of forgotten about memphis because almost because they were too good and they wrapped up the two seed and so they didn't get the oh my god they're phoenix they won 64 games jaw wasn't playing so we didn't get a bunch of highlights they were playing some bad teams down the end they weren't involved in the seeding we didn't have to talk about them at all i didn't really watch any memphis games the last two weeks because they just weren't important at that point but i think it's just too easy to lose sight of what a ridiculous season he had but i i to me i don't really i can't tell you that john moran had a better season than devin booker or or vice versa and and chris paul and booker obviously were both fantastic in the clutch but why booker and and paul or morant in in your case over some of these other candidates who i'll list them off you let me know if you had any others donovan mitchell james harden zach levine and drew holiday i briefly considered fred van vliet and darius garland but that that's really the full that's really the full list and part of it is the the role that these players with the exception of Chris Paul it is a little bit different have within their offense that you know Ja Morant and the success of that offense like Ja had to do a lot for the Grizzlies Donovan 
Mitchell did a lot for the for the Jazz, and I, he was the toughest omission for me, to be clear. Yeah. But Mitchell, A, he doesn't have to do a ton on the defensive end, and two, like, he didn't quite have the same, I, I don't think he had the same centrality or the same level of success for me as John Morant did. And this is focusing on when those guys are on the floor, rather than some sort of the on-off and everything else like that. But I, I thought that John Morant was you know modestly better i thought i considered mitchell i thought that he had he had a strong overall case and for those who who want those numbers on on donovan 57 percent true shooting 33 usage and can add in the about six assists per 36 minutes which is a career high for mitchell just edging above what he did last year so yeah i thought i thought he did very well but i thought jaw cp and devin booker were better and one other consideration there i just wasn't a heavy thing we've talked about it at certain points in the past donovan mitchell in clutch situations this year 37.7 usage 39.4 true shooting and the Jazz had a negative 6.3 net rating. They were 15 and 18 in close games, which includes like some of those became close games because of how badly they struggled in the fourth quarter. And Donovan Mitchell does have to put a lot on his shoulders in that time. You know, Rudy Gobert is not going to be their offensive engine in clutch time as, as good of a player as he is. And it's a big part of why the Jazz stumbled. And they could have, you know, with a slightly better performance in close games, they could have been in a much better position when it came to the playoffs and everything else. Yeah, Jazz underperformed their point differential which deserves a lot of credit for getting them to that point differential to be true sure. but they underperformed their point differential yet again by like eight and a half wins and yeah so i think if you want to say that the statistical argument between those guys for example paul is 12th in epm booker is 16th mitchell is 20th but mitchell is the highest offensive epm of those guys and you mentioned the clutch numbers and you don't some people might not want to get too wrapped up in those because it's a small sample but we are talking about what they did this year what the value they provided this year and moreover if you watch the utah jazz versus the phoenix suns in the clutch phoenix just is totally under control they know exactly what they're doing they can get to their spots they can get to their shots they're fully in control of the game they're one of like the phoenix suns we're not talking about just a run of the mill okay it was they're okay in the clutch the suns might have been one of the two greatest clutch teams of the last 20 years basically with the 73 and 9 warriors being the other one and that deserves some recognition to me like that that's an impressive enough accomplishment that i think it should weigh in here and that's why i have devin booker and chris ball and i don't i rarely will play into the okay this team deserves to have x number of guys and this team doesn't but the phoenix suns versus the utah jazz this year there was just no comparison between the two teams and the way their seasons went and so again that that could be a mild tiebreaker let's move on to the center line here this first part of this is just a definitional thing which i mean oh, there have been a lot of a lot of digital oh, oh yeah on this oh point. so you, you wouldn't have considered voting joel Embiid as a forward i i mean it's the, the nba's instruction zach Lowe pointed this out not that we're voters but they say play basically vote the player at the position that he plays the most so yeah sorry those guys are centers, but they're centers so one of them just has to be on second team that's just the way it works it's it's unfortunate and i wish you know and and you could argue i don't know how much of a difference for those guys emotionally or everything else it is first team second team but the other thing it does is it it takes a very talented player off of the third team and replaces it i thought that the forward line partially due to some of the idiosyncrasies of this year the forward group was weaker than the center group so i did feel a little bit badly for my for my third center that he got taken off but i agree with you that is it is a flawed system but it is the flawed system that we have to work with and while i will fiercely advocate 
for the for the changing of that system for the for for it to be top 15 players or if you want to do something basic like one front court player one back court player and three wild cards either of those would be significantly preferable to the current system neither of those reforms has been implemented so it doesn't really matter if they are that means while i do have this shift from mvp to all nba i had Jokic as the permitted mvp and the mv and the overall mvp so he's my first team guy joel Embiid to second and then you have three very strong candidates for me in terms of third team rudy gobert carl anthony towns and bam Adebayo. i went with gobert team yeah and i think that's very controversial and i don't think this is what's going to happen again due to the narratives around their respective seasons and that's going to matter for the wolves because if carl anthony towns makes an all nba team he'll be eligible for the designated player veteran extension after this uh, his seventh season however i think that rudy gobert had a better season than carl anthony towns i think he's the better player than carl anthony towns and so let's let's do a thought experiment here all right carl anthony towns transformational offensive force rudy gobert transformational defensive force however rudy gobert was also the center on the best offense in the nba carl anthony town and rudy gobert you could say maybe he's not driving that okay i might say 18 percent usage and the greatest true shooting percentage in nba history at least helps sure he does set good screens like they, they De- definitely not that. dragging it down in any way and no, i would I mean, say like, he's a like positive you, on that end. you can't if, they, if he's on the number one offense you can't argue that he's like some terrible offensive player and carl anthony towns could not be on the number one defense in the nba there's no personnel i believe basically that you could put around him that would allow him to be on the number one defense in the nba and oh hey by the way rudy gobert when he's out there the jazz played at the level of the number one defense in the nba somehow still then do this thought experiment for me let's say you took like let's let's look at the the defensive personnel around rudy gobert all right, so probably your best guy is Royce O'Neal. I would, I mean, when you consider his role as like the number one wing defender, he's probably even below average for that role, I would say. I don't think there's anyone who's an above average defender on the Jazz, just in general, other than maybe O'Neal and uh, Daniel House has been a little bit better lately, right? Like, the, you know, he's got two six-foot guards and Boyan Bogdanovich and Royce O'Neal in the starting lineup next to him. They played at the level of the number one defense in the NBA when he was. Let's say you took the equivalent level of offensive players and put them around Carl Anthony Town. You're not going to have the number one offense in the NBA if you do that. In fact, we've seen that they weren't close to the number one offense in the NBA with you know some pretty decent players around him, with Edwards and Russell and s- some decent shooters. Some of it was that they had to have more defensive players on the floor to protect Towns defensively. Now, that's not a perfect analogy because I think that the worst offensive players hurt you more on offense than the worst defensive players hurt you on defense. So it's not a perfect analogy, but I just think that overall Rudy Gobert particularly in the regular season as a defensive player like he just is totally transformative like he just to me contributes more to winning basketball games than Carl Anthony Towns does and yeah the Utah won three games more than the Wolves did this year it's not that huge of a difference but if you look at the net ratings when they're on the floor it's a massive difference so I know I, I went on for a long time there do you have anything to add you had Gobert third team also so I don't have to yep. convince you nope you don't I I, th- I think that's <laughs> I think that's all there. And then, but, and, and yeah. so you can argue that this, the flaw of the system, I, I, if I, I would have, if I had the opportunity, I would have had towns over my last forward, but that's not the system that's, that's allowed in this. So, 
That's unfortunate. Um, we can move uh, on. One to... more thing, too. Sure. Carl Anthony Towns, the Wolves were worse defensively, about three points for 100 when he was on the floor. And his backup is Nas Reed, who's not exactly some defensive stopper. Well, and, and, and the other part of this is, while you and I have grown to re- have, really appreciate the elite offensive center, Carl Anthony Towns is such a great example of how, even though it's true that an offensive center can transform your team and make you a lot better, that if it's the reverse of the point guard argument I've made for years, which is that if you can't do that, then someone else has to. And there's often a lower ceiling. And when Carl Anthony Towns was out there, the Wolves had a league average defense. And so they they ended up overall having a, you know, having a better ranking than that. But that was largely because of the minutes that he was not on the floor. And that's that's just part of the story here. And so yeah. I, I and think... also like they're playing him. Let's not forget that they're playing him a lot of his minutes with Jared Vanderbilt because exactly. he's so bad defensively. They, have they to. still are worse when he's out there. And here's the other thing too. His offense is very, very good, but he's... Yeah, usage is like 27 percent, right he we're not talking here about and he spaces the floor more off the ball than either of these guys but we're not talking about getting as much stuff run through him as Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic who are like 32 and 35 usage right like this is he spaces the floor sure but he's not taking that many threes per 36 minutes only taking about five and he's not just controlling everything for his offense the way those teams are so i think that's i'm not sure that he's the he's certainly not the best offensive center in basketball he's probably i would probably have him third i still think that i still think the town's offensive ceiling like could you do they could do more with him than they do but they also had a successful offense with him yeah maybe he does turn it over a lot though all right anyway that's enough on that um so let's finish up with forward here uh we both had Giannis and Tatum on our MVP ballot so I assume that is your first team forward it is not Kevin Durant makes it over Tatum I thought oh, per minute your, Kev- your different I thought, criteria I thought per minute Durant was better than Tatum but Tatum is you know that was close the between those two guys yeah. I just Ke- I Kevin Durant had an awesome awesome season and you know if and if Jason Tatum had played the 65 games that everybody else played and Kevin Durant played his 56 then I may well have actually gone with Kevin Durant both on my all NBA and for uh, that spot in MVP but Tatum played in the mid 70s instead and so that's now you're talking about a 20 game gap as opposed to 10 uh, which I think is enough to make up for the fact that I do think Kevin Durant is the better player and played better per minute this season Um, so yeah I I had KD on my second team LeBron James was my other second team forward same and And LeBron it's the this and even though the funhouse mirror was in effect when he played center lebron's role within the lakers offense was still so much higher than all of these other real candidates and well, what about demar i wouldn't say his candidate for was larger or that he was his role within the lakers offense was larger than demar's for the bulls i struggled between lebron and demar and i ultimately went with lebron just as him being the better player lebron 30 so 32 usage versus 31 8 so that's pretty close and then if you add in assist per 36 minutes lebron six versus DeRozan's five so yeah that's actually that's fairly that's fairly close and neither one of those guys was any great shakes defensively and and, uh, also I'll note this too and in fact I think I am going to move Demar on the second team based on the Demar outside of the Phoenix guys is probably the best clutch player in the NBA this year and LeBron's clutch stats were atrocious as were the Lakers overall I'm going to keep I'm going to keep LeBron as my second team guy but then and DeRozan is is on my third team of course yeah now we're not taking away points from LeBron based on his shadow G 
DMing either. We're, we're <laughs> no, that's not fair. No, because because he 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 may have uh, subtracted as much from the Lakers due to from that as he added with his on court play <laughs> this year. I mean, that's actually that's interesting to think about, right? Like, what did think about how the Lakers played without him last year versus how they played with him this year? It's actually pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> with the players the players he traded away or, or wanted traded away and, and also the, the asset too the 22nd pick as well was something that could have been used to improve the team in some way or another um yeah so so you've got lebron in your third team who I is have LeBron your on last my second team forward? frozen on my third team oh sorry yes thank you i have damara my second team and lebron on third team who is your last forward i actually have a gap here i wanted to just kind of talk this through with you before i pick someone i this is as you talked about none of these candidates are particularly overwhelming they aren't and it, so i think there are a number of different players worthy of consideration i think jalen brown's candidacy here has been a little bit underappreciated again yeah. an, an important yeah, part Z- zach of Lowe didn't even mention i mean and and zach is someone who goes out of the way to mention everybody to mollify fan bases who might get pissed off like oh you didn't even consider this guy but yeah he didn't even mention jalen brown like to me i don't see why like what is the statistical argument other than minutes played for pascal siakam over jalen brown maybe he's a, he's a passes a little bit more i guess but i mean should we go through that in addition to jimmy butler was the other guy in it for me i assume you you yes and i well. i will say because again it's the it's the base threshold and over i consider draymond green but he did not make a team yeah 46 games played he he certainly would have been up there if he had played anywhere close to a full i mean that that's getting down there to the point for me where you just can't really be considered um but yeah so so that's your universe here is butler brown siakam was there anyone else that that's the that's the primary three yeah so i think i think that's a fair group let's yeah we can we can do the do some of the basic the basic things between these three gentlemen if we're we'll start with the kind of the true the true shooting and usage as we often do it i'll add in assist per 36 because i like that as kind of the role within the offense jalen brown 57 percent true shooting 30.5 usage 3.7 3.7 assists per 36. Jimmy Butler, 59% true shooting on 26.5 usage and 5.8 assists per 36. That is the highest assist rate. And then Siakam, 57% true shooting, 25.8 usage. So slightly below Butler, well below Jalen Brown and five assists per 36. So modestly below Tate Butler, m- meaningfully above Jalen Brown. Yeah, EPM, Jimmy Butler, highest in both offensive and defensive and plus 4.5. Brown is plus 2.8 which would be so butler is 15th in the nba brown is 48th and siakam is 61st and similarly siakam not particularly high in any of the other impact metrics that i've seen now siakam despite the fact that he missed a month still played more minutes than these guys he played an insane 38 minutes per game when he was available thank you nick nurse yeah and actually did end up playing the most games of any of these guys in addition to the most minutes per game as well 68 for him 66 for brown 57 butler to me butler on a per play basis even if there's some things about his game that i am really concerned about i've always felt that the impact metrics overstated how good he is and because he's just every year his on-ball ability continues to wane he didn't have nearly the distributional effect this season as well only had the 57 games again as well i think defensively to me he's still the best off-ball defender of this group and he gets a ton of steals but he's the worst on-ball guy of this group i like brown best as an on-ball guy with this group and that's also his role on this celtics team more and they've got other guys to help behind him brown to me 
is the easiest fit of any of these guys better three-point shooter and able to play off the ball which neither of these none of these guys to me are like you know premium on ball forces and you know that the difference between 26 and 30 usage that's a big one to me right and it's somewhat uh, made up in the in the playmaking element of it but it is still significant yeah so uh individual net rating jalen brown among players who averaged more than 25 minutes per game eighth in the entire nba had a 9.8 net rating it's pretty good these other guys not really up there butler 6.1 net rating pretty far down the list and siakam 4.8 and let's keep in mind too boston was very good but i don't think anyone was saying that boston was like way better than toronto or way you know not better than miami certainly though miami was the number one seed a lot of that was because of what they're able to do in the time that butler was off the floor and some of their depth i still think jimmy butler in a lot of settings is a better player than jalen brown but there's also a lot of settings where he would kind of mess things up because he shoots 23 percent from three it's just really weird to me though like i kind of want to go with jalen brown but just the fact that nobody even seems to be talking about him here is just weird to me like is there something i don't understand what i'm missing well considering i know there were people who were downplaying trey young even being on an all nba team i'm not sure i'm gonna focus too much on what the kind of the collective is yeah, here but, i have but I, I mean even people like like zach for example that i yeah, really respect, respect. Yeah. i guess it's just boston is viewed as more of an ensemble cast or a, a defensive group which brown is a big part of by the way like he can guard pretty much any position except center and switch and he, he's huge in that and what i think part of it is that jimmy butler has been such a favorite of a lot of the models that it just you you, you don't have you have to kind of really work through it to kind of to have Jalen there I mean so you brought up Jimmy Butler overall is is higher than I think he's, he's higher than Jalen Brown like an EPM on both offense and defense maybe people just think of Brown as a guard maybe that's why they're they're not included which is a dumb reason like he's he's small forward you can play small forward he plays plenty of forward for them so and I think I, I think Jalen Brown has been better defensively than Jimmy Butler this year and I think that he has been more important for Boston's success. And then there's the the weird part, like, so uh, I don't know everything that goes into, like, the black boxes, but so, like, for example, in Raptor, Jalen Brown plus 1.5 in offensive Raptor, and Jimmy Butler is a plus 3.3. We went into the similarities in their overall offensive profile, and there may be things that I'm missing. I, I openly acknowledge that possibility, if not probability, but I don't think there's something huge there, you know, like, we, we there, because I, well, what about offensive rebounding? Nope, that's, Jalen Brown is a had a had a there's like the overall they were about even jimmy butler was a slightly more yeah. pro, he was we, a more we, we may be getting if we're talking at offensive rebounding we may exactly be but it's so it's like well the yeah. argument the argument from the all-in-ones that that jimmy butler was this like meaningfully better player with a kind of similar overall profile on offense i'm i'm a little bit skeptical of that this year and and just like we have been critical of Jokic's, you know, like the that the the defensive on off stuff with that this year, I I think it's fair to have some skepticism with some of that stuff with Jimmy Butler this year. And so I, I went with Jalen Brown as my last guy. Yeah, I mean the Boston Celtics were forty three and twenty three when Jalen Brown played this year. Like a big part of their problem was when he had I think it was a hamstring earlier in the season. And uh, no, the other part of this that makes it a little bit weird is that if, for those who care more, and, and it's almost everybody who cares more about time played than I do Jalen Brown 2200 minutes Jimmy Butler 1900 minutes that's huge and then Siakam played more than that because Pascal Siakam's hilarious yeah yeah 
fuck it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jalen Braun. Like 30% usage at slightly above average true shooting on the wing for a guy who can shoot. I realize that he's not a great passer and he's not driving your offense in that way, but that skill set is just so valuable to me. And it's not like he he there's been times when he hasn't been that great in impact metrics. I think he's been fine there. Not not a blow you away candidacy necessarily. Obviously, if you could marry his individual stats with Jimmy Butler's ranking in in some of these, then you'd really have something. You know, then you'd probably have a close to a top ten player in the NBA. And Jalen Brown is not that but yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna pencil him in and it's just it's really like he's like in terms of the who's talked about in the celtics tatum marcus smart and robert williams for this ridiculous marcus smart defensive player of the year candidacy which we'll get to that's why like those guys have gotten and then they traded for Derek white like jalen brown has been just nobody talks about him on this team he's easily their second best player it's not even close okay this does this does lead to the strange dynamic and again i don't think of quotas and teams and everything like that that the best team the best record in the eastern conference conference for both of us didn't get a single player on an all-nba team but i think part of that is the story that will come up in a different award do you want to go to do you want to go to defensive player of the year or coach of the year i I think defensive player of the year it's in the same kind of vein of some of the things that we've been talking about and i'm sorry what is the argument for any of these perimeter guys as the most valuable defensive player in the nba i'm i'm not buying it personally i I'm, i'm not there and maybe it's hard to it is hard to quantify perimeter defense it's harder to quantify perimeter defense than interior defense but I also didn't think that any perimeter defender had a superlative season that I saw. There were many that were part of successful defenses that were integral to successful defenses. Shout out to Marcus Smart and Mikhail Bridges and at times Drew Holiday. And yeah, I, I wouldn't have Drew in the mix. I, I thought he no, I wouldn't down, for defensive player of the year either. But by his standards, the, it wasn't like they, you know, like they they were defended everyone and they were the reason that their defense was great. These were really wonderful ensemble casts, and I I am sympathetic. To to the to me i'm more sympathetic to the idea of somebody like bam where the miami heat were a very good defense they were a very good defense when bam was on the floor and his case for defensive player of the year relative to other centers is always going to be unconventional because they switch so much and so miami doesn't do the big man things as well because that's not the point of their defense and bam ended up second on mine and while this wasn't the greatest rudy gobert season rudy gobert yeah, there's always this I, I, muddiness. I mean, I don't, I don't know honestly. Like, why is it not the greatest Rudy Gobert season? Just like, what's, what's down for him? Like, his supporting cast defensively is worse than ever, and it's still it, getting it's the same worse results. Than, opponents are making more shots around the rim, which is a little bit of a concern. Yeah. Like, it's not as ridiculous as it has been in the past. But I mean, it, it Rudy Gobert's case is still very strong. I will acknowledge that had I Draymond Green to me did not play enough to be considered for an individual yeah. full Again, season. Forty six games for for Green and he he was number one in defensive epm by a mile and to me he was my defensive player of the year when we did this at the beginning of january and then he basically just didn't play at all uh, after that for sure a a time and you know came back at the end wasn't quite himself he's hopefully ramping up now again but yeah he would if he had been if he had played 65 games he would have been my guy yeah and for me it would have 60 might have even been enough but he wasn't close to that so it doesn't really matter and so gobert the jazz did all of the stuff, the hallmarks of a Rudy Gobert defense stuff, very well when he was on the floor this year. They were, they never fouled. They didn't give him any shots at the rim, gave up a lot of floaters, were pretty good, but not elite as a defensive rebounding team. But remember, they were playing small at the four basically 
all the time. And yeah, a little bit worse in terms of opponent field goal percentage at the rim. And Gobert has the, um, but he also like, he has the lowest opponent field goal percentage of shots defended at the rim of the high frequency guys. And something that I found so striking, and to me, this was, it wasn't necessary for him to win the award, but I think is something that is so telling is that the Jazz, the on-off splits were still pretty robust, even when Hassan Whiteside was his backup, who is a totally capable center in the same vein. Like, this isn't a Carl Anthony Towns and Nas Reed situation, but Gobert is that damn good, and it's not like the Jazz starting defense outside of Gobert, defender-wise, is so much better than it is when they go to the perimeter, when they go to the bench, sorry. Yeah, Rudy, to me, is number one. If you want to compare the skill sets of him and Bam, and Bam, to me, has taken a very big step forward in his help defense ability this year, but still is not among the elite rim protectors quite yet to me the ability to switch and deny penetration and that is massive that also though requires that you have a certain system around you i think despite the fact that bam in theory is more versatile i think that rudy gobert would actually improve more defenses around the league he's the he's the more valuable defender because of because he is the system yeah and really you can also like rudy gobert still can switch it's just you don't necessarily want him doing that as much because he's such a good productive like he's better in a drop to me than bam is by a lot you know i think you and there are very few teams where you would want to switch with him because he's just so good in a conventional pick and roll defense it's really only against the teams with elite off-ball shooters where you're gonna want you know your clay thompson's and and staff like rudy definitely got lit up a little bit in that last warriors game even without Steph, where they were just playing him in a drop but he's capable of getting out there they just didn't ask him to do that in that game so i think he's capable of switching late clock and still is pretty difficult to attack and I even believe for the Miami Heat, if you put Rudy Gobert on their team instead of Bam Adebayo, I think that they would actually be a little bit better. They would change up their scheme and just get over more screens unless it was late in the clock. But it's not like Jimmy Butler and P.J. Tucker and Kyle Lowry like, can't do that. It's just that they can switch. And if you threw Bam on the Utah Jazz, the Utah Jazz would be nowhere near as good. And there are plenty of other teams that just would have to play a, a drop coverage where Bam wouldn't be as good as well. And so I think, and again, I mean, the, when you look at the defensive rating when they're on the floor Rudy Gobert was had a higher number this year than Bam Adebayo that's pretty crazy to think about when you look at the surrounding talent on those teams so Bam was my number two and then number three I ended up just going with Draymond because there's nobody else that I really was just confident at this level I thought Anacupo had a down year he's way down there in some of the impact metrics including defensive EPM and he had a lot of, of work to do too without Brooke Lopez this year to be sure but he wasn't able to do it in the same way that Gobert bear was was still i would say superior defensive talent around him compared to gobert so i just went with draymond because i think he had the best season and i was just fine with i I think that 46 games to him is more valuable than whatever it was 65 games at jaron jackson jr who was in this mix for me and 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 i would say jared allen was uh, uh, to me to some extent but but draymond having such a stronger case over a smaller sample i like you i was reluctant to do it it wasn't what i intended but when i was it happens sometimes when we're doing this exercise when you're trying to sell yourself on other guys and you're like well why am i having to sell myself for this why am i having to say jaron jackson jr like the team was a lot better and they were when he was at center and when we do all defensive teams 
which will not be today, we will we can talk about it and appreciate some of those cases. But defensive, like I was for me, those cases when I was putting them together in my head were more like, oh, well, this guy deserves either consideration or a spot on an all defensive team rather than like getting defensive player of the year. And so once I realized everybody was around that, that was the next level of case. Then I'm like, well, I might as well just go with Draymond. Yeah, 102.8 defensive rating when Draymond Green was on the floor. And interestingly, early in the year, the numbers with him on and off weren't really that stark. But then as soon as he went out for real, their defensive numbers shot up. I mean, through the first 35 games of the season, they were playing at one of the best defenses of all time with him out there. So yeah, ultimately, I just, I feel more comfortable with him than a Robert Williams or a Jaron Jackson, who would have been some of my other candidates it's there it, Allen as well guys who are just reaching this level for the first time I've never seen him play before in the playoffs really and Jaron Jackson still has the foul issues as well not sure that he really can defend in the post very well we may find that out over the next couple of weeks or so let's move on to coach of the year as seemingly always there are a lot of coaches that have that had wonderful years that have cases to be on the ballot I'll include some of my honorable mentions seriously considered like your other podcast co-host John Hollinger talked about in his piece there is there is a, pr- a pressure that I feel to avoid at times the team did way better than expected and the coach deserves some of the credit there but like so JB Bickerstaff I thought he did a very nice job and I'm not going to denigrate it at all but he didn't make my, he didn't make my ballot he did more with this team that I thought was going to be straight up bad and if they had been healthier then it would have been even more dramatic and then Chris Finch trying to you know doing the best job that any coach has so far to build a defense with Carl Anthony Towns while also working within the offense to make that really sing for them as the Wolves had their had, had a strong season overall and I brought this up that they were I believe sixth in net rating after Jan- January 1st that's particularly impressive and the hardest omission though for me on my top three was Ime Odoka and I think he's just at the caliber like if I if I could have if it would have been four spots it would have done that and I have no problem with that the Celtics played at a ridiculous level at their best this year, and you could see the evolution of the squad during the year that they were kind of figuring things out and 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 got things together. And so I thought Udoka did a really great job, and there's no real reason why he didn't like why he didn't get a top three spot. But I also didn't give him one because the other three have really strong cases to me. Yeah, it's got to be Monty number one to yes. me. And hey, you might say they got lucky in close games. Well, this coaching might have had something to do with that. I know. Chris Paul is a, a coach on the floor as well during those periods, but Chris Paul didn't play every game either, and they were still really good at in the clutch. So, yeah, and, and that's a big that's to me the strongest part of Monty Williams' argument is that whatever whatever hit the Suns, they were still a buzzsaw. And that is not something that we often say with great teams, and it's especially not when we say on great teams that don't have a top ten player. Um, let's see here. Taylor Jenkins was my number two. Same. Ultimately, again, I think the Grizzlies in our my Myopic society, this crazy, what have you done for me lately? Uh, Taylor Jenkins is number two. It just to get this Memphis team that nobody thought was going to be a home court advantage team to the second best record in basketball, particularly with John Morant only playing 57 games. I will see what he's like in the playoffs, but I think clearly, yeah. Another important part of this Memphis fifth in defense without opponent shooting. Like they uh, opponent shot about league average on threes.
threes. A little, they shot they shot worse on corner threes, which you actually sorry they shot better on corner threes. I read that I read my chart wrong. A little teeny teeny bit of luck on on long twos, but so like I mean we talked about how coaches make more of an impact defensively, and they had to change around their personnel a lot. They had a lot of guys that were out, and Memphis has incredible depth, but I think Jenkins has played a part in cultivating that depth. Third was Eric Spolstra, and if Miami had just won a few more games, maybe he would have been second. I do try to default to the coach that I think is better. I do think Eric Spolstra is better than Taylor Jenkins, but it was just the Grizz were so much better than the Heat this year that I just had to go with Jenkins. And Spo, again, I think this was not getting them to the number one seed in the East. Yeah, it was only 53 wins, but they still won to me five games more than I expected. And they basically did that because, hey, he's just part of this amazing system where they bring in guys who are totally unheralded and they contribute and they don't miss a beat. And he's a huge part of that. And Yudoka, this Celtics clutch performance was not a feather in his cap to me. I think that was one where I he's got to take some of the blame for them not being that good. He take a lot of the, the credit for them being as good as they were on the defensive end but they you could also say they probably should have been better early on in the season than they were uh steve kerr was in this to me for a while and if his team had stayed healthy maybe he would have been in it but it, and he had some real challenges with having to reintegrate clay thompson and then draymond green going out right then and then as soon as draymond came back steph went out and uh he did keep the team spirit afloat enough to still be the third best record in basketball uh, they would have home court advantage in the nba finals if they get there but it, he just wasn't quite able to keep it afloat enough in the non-steph minutes and without steph uh, nick nurse hasn't come up at all but raise your hand if you saw the toronto raptors winning 48 games this year and we also know that he's just a great coach Bickerstaff, he again would have been right in this mix probably if his team had just stayed healthy and maybe you could even see that say that for billy donovan as well where his team really fell off at the end um anybody else you wanted to talk about here what was what was your top three again same as yours Wow. Monty Williams, number one, Taylor Jenkins, number two, Eric Spolster, number three. But a lot a lot of strong candidates this year. I'm very happy that you brought up Nurse in particular. He did a great job. And I, th- I th- personally think Nick Nurse is the best coach in the NBA. Let's do Rookie of the Year. Let's do it. And I want to give credit to Scotty Barnes for making this closer with his, with his push towards the end of the season. Also, Evan will be missing time. And Rookie of the Year, like Defensive Player of the Year, there's some murkiness in terms of whether it is most valuable rookie or most outstanding rookie. I typically lean heavily towards most outstanding because that means you were better you know that you happen to be healthier that you happen to play more that's value to the team if they wanted to be called most valuable rookie they could do that but Barnes you know he played he played a an important role on a very successful team 55% true shooting on 19 usage that usage rate is slightly below Mobley but if you add in his role as a passer you could argue that Barnes and Mobley are comparable on that end both you know and, but here's the thing that is the I would say that's probably on the stronger side of of Barnes argument you could between the offense and defense we've both been a little bit more ambivalent about Scotty Barnes' defense than some. It is not the strong part of Evan Mobley's argument because his defense has been phenomenal. Yeah, and Evan Mobley's offensive stats would have looked better if he had just played center all year. Defensive stats maybe wouldn't have looked as good, I don't know. But to me, if we didn't mention him, I probably at least should have dropped his name in the Defensive Player of the Year discussion. Like, he's probably a top 10 defensive player in the NBA this year. Probably top 15. Scotty Barnes is not that to me. And his Swiss Army now qualities were huge, particularly late in the season. His ability to 
handle the ball in some of these jumbo lineups that were was really useful and he's a guy other than his outside shooting who doesn't have a ton of weaknesses I do think his defense is overrated right now I mean I think there are some people out there who would say that Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes defense is similar and that's just simply not the case in my view when you consider Mobley's rim protection I think actually Mobley is a better isolation defender than Scotty Barnes as well and he's not going to hound anybody full court but that's uh, only of limited utility I would say so to me Mobley's defense he's the best defensive rookie since Tim Duncan it's really hard for me to see how I can make that statement and then say that he's not the rookie of the year like Scotty Barnes to me had a solid rookie year but this he wasn't some historically like great rookie necessarily he was on a winning team would the Raptors have been that much worse with Franz Wagner instead of him eh, I don't know that's an interesting question they're different types types of players and I do think Barnes's lack of shooting is something that hurts the offense if you look at the impact metrics Barnes is not really viewed as a positive player Mobley gets dinged a lot on offense but is viewed as a massive positive uh, on defense and so I, I, this was not close to me I think some other people thought it was close I don't think it's close I thought personally. it was made closer by Barnes yes. play at the end of the year but not close yeah and enough Mobley, so that I moved Barnes up in this iteration past Franz Wagner right and so I I have Barnes second and then I really seriously considered three other people for the number three slot and it that just so happens to be five people which we're not doing all rookie teams right now but you can have a guess as to what my first team's going to be and those guys are Cade Cunningham Herb Jones and Franz Wagner Cunningham has the volume argument that he had a such a larger role within the Pistons offense 27.5 usage dwarfs all of these other players his efficiency is dwarfed by all of them at 50.4 percent true shooting and then if you want to add in assists Cade Cunningham 6.1 per 36 minutes that's well ahead of Wagner and Scotty Barnes but that lack of efficiency really held held Cade back for me and I still feel very strongly about him as a as an eventual player this is not the prospects rankings we already did that and you you can get into all that and then for Herb Jones he had less to do and he did it extremely well Jones made 34% of his threes and had above average efficiency 57% but 13.7 usage is so small and Herb Jones wonderful defender you know really took strides there but I ended up going with Franz Wagner because I thought he was not the best of both worlds but I thought he had the more cohesive argument large role within his offense credible defensive player and unlike Kate Cunningham who had a really brutal start to the year and there was plenty of context for that but that context doesn't really matter for this exercise Franz Wagner just played really well the whole year yeah I went with Wagner over Cunningham as well for number three Cunningham did come on but the overall efficiency was just too low under 50 percent true shooting and now this isn't the case of like say De'Aaron Fox or Dennis Smith Jr. when they were rookies where their efficiency is just so bad that they actually hurt the team Kate Cunningham because of how few other options they had he had really helped the team just watching them you could see that the only time they had any chance to score is when they were giving him the ball and when he was out there for the team so he he was helping the team but and if he had been on a different team he probably would have been more efficient and maybe would have gotten into this mix but it's just I, I can't say that a guy with under 50 percent true shooting is up there and Te- I technically thought, I will note he is over 50 percent he got to 50.4 but oh thank you not- thank you yeah I'm sorry I, I did not check it in like the last three days of the season so all right well then he's over no uh <laughs> 
And for those who are for those who are interested, um, unfortunately, EPM does not have a rookie filter, so it's a little bit harder to do. But um, Bones Highland was actually number one in overall Raptor. Franz Wagner was number two, and but again, I've explained that for me, like I mean, there are some I have some misgivings with with how some of those things were attributed, including. Evan Mobley somehow being third in defensive Raptor of rookies is ridiculous. So, yeah, Cunningham, to me, though, I would probably still be the highest prospect in this list. And, I mean, I might even have Jalen Green number two. I, we'll, we'll see next year when we do it. I, I'm just speaking extemporaneously here. I'm too scared to speak extemporaneously on this. They're all really close. I love all three of them. Yeah, so Mobley 1, Barnes 2, Wagner 3 for me. Let's get to Most, most improved. improved. Yeah, we haven't talked about that and but yeah it's it's not an award that you and i do at all during the season part of that is because it can be a pain to prepare unless you have really good databases because you, you have to like compare stats and there's there's like a really good tool for that if somebody creates it i would really appreciate it like also john schumann and a few others put together some really good stats and my number one is john morant and i have a rule that first to second year you can't get considered and you can make an argument that john morant is like kind of why second to third year is is very is, is dicey because like i should improve a lot but going from 27 usage to 34 while improving your efficiency is an incredibly difficult double that's a part of what pascal siakam did a couple years ago when he won most improved but getting up to 34 usage is huge and and john morant i mean working into the all nba conversation he made both of our teams and if he had stayed a little bit healthier can make an argument he would have been even higher that while you can make an argument and i might do this with one other player that somebody else improved more john morant's improvement it's it's sort of like this idea of like of wins added like this kind of came up in baseball where it's it's harder to get those last couple wins than it is to get the first couple so john morant's improvement is more important than the other guys on my list I think that's true. I have some other philosophies. The, the no second year guys thing, I, I adhere to that pretty strictly. Not only because you have an expected improvement from rookie year to second year, but also because a lot of guys' rookie years are just weird. And there's also it, like you, then you're pricing in the adjustment into the league. And like, I mean, you, this is going to yeah. come up potentially with Cade Cunningham next year. Right. Like, and oh. and maybe, they, maybe they didn't play that much their rookie years. So there's not much of a sample. And you're coming in on this terrible team. So your role is going to be kind of fucked up if you're a guy who's gonna have the ball a lot and and uh and to me i also really make it i try to make it about like actual skill improvement not even necessarily statistical improvement but i want to actually see something with my eyes like you came in here with some new tricks you're better and i don't know that that's necessarily quite the case with job because he already had some more unique tricks than a lot of guys in nba history with his passing and even more so dribbling creativity but his across the board increases i mean number one just the overall to go from 16.7 per and 54 percent true shooting to 24 per 58 percent true shooting he bumped his usage up by six and a half percentage points he reduced his turnovers in Mm -hmm. addition to increasing his usage rate down to below average now for his position 12.6 percent it was 15.3 he increased his steal percentage he increased his rebounding he's went from three percent to 4.2 percent offensive rebounds and 10 percent to 14 percent defensive rebounds and those are really valuable because when he gets an offensive rebound he's putting it back a lot of times that's just his own miss too and on the defensive glass when he gets that he's going to run it down your throat at that point as well three-point shooting really upped the volume there to 
4.9 per 36 minutes from 4.2 up to 34.5%. Totally credible now from 30% a year ago. Free throw shooting went from 6.5 to 7.9 per 36 minutes. Shooting 3% better at the foul line this year. Just every single aspect other than assists per 36 minutes. The only thing that's down a little bit this year. And uh, oh yeah, by the way, 21 points for 36 minutes to 30 and got 4% more efficient in terms of true shooting. It's just an absolute tour de force in his improvement. And he wasn't he really seriously in the all-star consideration last year. And he made my second team all NBA this year. That's pretty big improvement. It is. So he was your number one? Yes. Who's your number two? Darius Garland was 36th on my point guard rankings last year and was ninth this year. That's a pretty big. He's jump. My number... He was a deserving all-star to me this year. He's my number two as well. If you want to see it this way, 55% true shooting on 25 usage last year, 58 on 28 this year, but real jump in assists per 36 minutes. And there, a lot of this is better surrounding talent, but the Cavs offensive rating when Garland is on the floor went from 107.6 to 115.2. And I, I mean, what is what, what is the surrounding? Why is the surrounding talent so much better this year? I mean, they didn't guess, have Jared Allen much of last year. Okay, so. but but like they had Colin Sexton, and no. love and love was way more available than we expected. No, that's that's true, and you know, I wouldn't. And I think maybe more of it was just that they weren't playing some guys who were just total ciphers out there as much as they were last year. Um, so yeah, there was maybe a little better surrounding talent, but to me, this is a guy we're just watching him. He just turned himself into a threat off the pick and roll from three the statistical improvements his finishing improvement his pick and roll craft uh his distribution out of pick and roll as basically their only off the dribble threat it was really incredible i, I think to to basically he made the Cavs to me a credible offense basically on his own another way to describe this is that last year darius garland in estimated plus minus cpm was a slight negative player this year plus four is i think that's like 16th or something like that in the league that is a dramatic dramatic improvement and you brought up where he went in point guard rankings and also not as extreme as john rand of like moving into the uh, starting to move into the like upper echelons of the league but that fundamentally changes who the Cavs are it fundamentally changes his place within the point guard hierarchy so that that matters a lot to me and there are a lot of other players who improved but garland took a big step forward and took a very important step forward so he was your number two as well he was and wow, that's surprising because this, this is such a nebulous category yeah and by by the way we haven't mentioned this i mean the longtime listeners will know this is that nate and i do not talk about our words at all before we we do this podcast my number three i had seriously considered until john schumann great john schumann of nba.com put out this graphic of biggest jumps in points rebounds and assists per 36 minutes from this year to last year and one of the players on that list not because going from a small role to a big role but going from a big role to the biggest role is my mvp nikola jokic and the reason why jokic so first of all the defensive end we've talked about a lot and that him getting to bare minimum passable but probably like above average has not only been huge for himself i think that's the reason he got my mvp this year but and, and you can make an argument that what jokic is doing offensively this year isn't improvement it's just an increased role like i think that's fair to argue but I also just went, well, I mean, let's give him credit. He's a, like, he is, he is doing more 
than he was doing before, and he's doing it better. And why why not? Why not give him a third place vote here? <laughs> yeah, I just watching him, I just don't it doesn't look that different to me. And it, maybe defensively it's a little bit better, although their defense has fallen off lately. Sure. I went with Miles Bridges here and okay. he's in my also considered. Yeah, and Bridges went from seventeen point three to twenty two point six in terms of usage, yet also massively reduced his turnover percentage and a guy who really just showed more ball skills off the dribble more uh, ability to attack he improved the number of shots he was taking at the rim with this uh, increased usage he just was mostly a play finisher last year and and he was able to do much more this year as a driver he has that spin move floater game which uh, was pretty decent for him as well and i'll I'll give you a stat nate yeah miles bridges if you include passes pick and rolls were about 14 percent of his possessions this year he was over a point per possession which is 71st percentile in that stat also a positive isolation player as always i mean he's difference maker in transition like that level of ball skills or i mean if you want to if you want to consider this as well miles bridges was 0.88 points per possession on jump shots off the dribble like he has a lot more there so like you're seeing creation you brought up the turnover increase like that is that is more like his case is more traditional than the one that i chose for number three and i totally respect it other candidates jordan Poole. sure although i think he was he was coming on by the end of last season and but he certainly was fantastic his foil tyler hero was another one jared allen who who you mentioned really improved offensively and this was the first year i really thought he was a defensive difference maker as well he probably actually would have been my number four if we had one Dejounte murray has come out in a lot of circles uh, as being in this mix to me i just think he and he did certainly improve he got more efficient and also took on a much larger role in the offense. I thought he took a little bit of a step back defensively this year, but I also didn't think that his improvement, and he was definitely a better passer this year, but I, I just, it just didn't seem like a mind altering leap to me. I, I had him been also considered. Um, I, I mean, and, he did make the all-star team, but as I've mentioned a number of times, I don't really think of him as actually that level of player. Another one that was in that considered for me was Amphrey Simons. Sure. And had Simons gotten more time with that, and, and it was a bizarre team, the, the, the that like kind of middle, the, the third quarter of the year, I guess is one way to put it. But jumping from 18 usage to 25 is incredible. And Simon's assist rate um, per 36 minutes, it didn't double, but it kind of came close to that. And I mean, some of the some of the numbers on that, I brought this up right around when he got hurt, like pick and rolls and everything like that. And doing it on a team that's just kind of in this weird state. But I mean, he did it a lot of times shorthanded when he was like the only threat. And so I, I thought Simon's, to me, looked like a much more dangerous NBA player than I had seen before. Yeah, if he had played at the level he played at for those two months, all year then i think he would have been in consideration here for me it's this was a tough year for this and it has been for a while like there's a lot of guys who really work hard in their game these days robert williams was another one although his was probably more about staying healthy which is an improvement that does matter yeah for me rob i've been high on robert williams forever this was more him getting and making the most of the opportunity rather than him being a fundamentally different player okay one more category we're gonna get to or two more i should say but executive of the year and not executive of the year your ballot, please. There are 
I actually thought this was in some ways a weaker ballot than in some other years, in part mm. just because there wasn't as much kind of opportunity. There weren't there weren't teams that had important drafts and important free agency, for one. That that's one distinct part of this. So like some of the teams that, that had decisions and also there were some decision makers that had more of a mixed bag. You know, they made a couple of good moves. This will also come up in, in not executive of the year, where there were some that made good enough moves that they couldn't be as in as strong a position on the ballot because of that. But so like credit to Daryl Morey, who is an honorable mention for me, the decision to hold off on a Ben Simmons trade. And we'll see how James Harden works out. But he, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, if they lose in the first round of the Raptors, they, and he still but, has to give James Harden a $50 million a year contract. Sure. <laughs> exactly. That's that's part of why he's why he's not there. And it, the, the team kind of was in this. There, there are benefits to getting the best player in the immediate next to Joel Embiid. But there are also downsides in that the roster was still in flux the entire year and now they have to figure it all out and paying him that contract bob myers holding to his guns and taking kuminga and moody but then also making the best use of minimum contracts of anybody in the league with Otto porter and gary payton the second was and Bielitsa, as flawed as he was, had some important positive moments for, for the Warriors as well. Kobe Altman drafting Evan Mobley. The marketing acquisitions a little bit harder with all of that. Um, you have that. And then, you know, a few others that, they, I, I mean, Arturis, at one point I had really high in this because of the decisions that they made. And he's definitely deserves consideration. But my top three, start with number three. This one I didn't exceed at, at going into the offseason, but that's why the trade deadline counts. And that's Brad Stevens. And Brad Stevens getting he did two things that i appreciate now more one because it hadn't happened and the other one because because we get it better hiring ime udoka had him fourth in my coach of the year did a really good job this year still reforming the team but bringing back Al Horford worked out very well and acquiring Derek White. And White is not the best player on a championship team, but they didn't have to give up that much to get him. And even, I, you know, the Josh Richardson extension didn't work out perfectly, but they were still able to include him in the Derek White deal without it being like a huge negative value contract. So Brad Stevens is my number three. Yeah, Stevens to me was right up there. I actually had him at number two, but so much of this, right? Like I was really high on Bob Myers at earlier points this year, then the Warriors kind of fell off a little bit. But if his team had stayed healthy, you would have to have him in there. But a big part of what he did was drafting Kaminga and Moody, and that's not really going to pay off for this year. And for some of these other ones, right? Okay, when the Bulls were number one in the East, our, our tourists look great. If they get swept in the next week by the Milwaukee Bucks, it's kind of like, all right, you know, it was all this worth it i guess it was just to get back on the map with DeRozan. it's really annoys me that because the vucevic trade was like still part of all of the plan and what they implemented in this offseason to like not be able to include that in his record and that there's just this artificial cutoff point but by, by the way that is also for there have been some arguments for zach Kleiman, but most of the work that he did to build the depth of the memphis grizzlies did not happen in yeah. this league year so he i didn't consider him even though i think he's doing a damn good job it just didn't happen this year um, my number two is Kevin Pritchard. Kevin Pritchard has two signature decisions. One of them is Rick Carlisle as the coach. And while Carlisle is a kind of a weird fit for where this team is kind of going, that is still, he was still the best coach that was available. Um, at least the best established coach. I'm still working my way through some of these rookie head coaches that probably have, I mean, I th think very highly of Ime Udoka, obviously, and some of the others as well. But also, not only deciding to trade DeMontis Sabonis, but trading DeMontis Sabonis for Tyrese Halliburton is it changes the Pacers 
place within their success cycle. It was, I think, incredibly high value for Sabonis, who I was, you know, was both kind of like overrated, but also hard to trade for those for those reasons. Doesn't have a ton of time remaining on his contract. And then you can also factor in, yes, he was very old, but Chris Duarte can play. And so you draft somebody in the late lottery who can play. That's definitely a good thing. So I thought that Pritchard, part of the argument for him over Stevens is that, oh, also Stevens gets a demerit for the Daniel Tice, even though Daniel Tice is helping them now, but just like trading, thinking that that was... I mean, well, I'll tell you what, Danny, honestly, like he does get a demerit for that. But if Daniel Tice... If they make it to the East Finals, they probably will would not have been able to do that without Daniel Tice. So yeah, yeah. I was and, critical and of that deal as well, but he still is a good player. The reasoning being that Tice is a negative value contract, not because yeah. the value Although, proposition, not that he was going to be bad for them. I mean, I think they did recognize that he was a little undervalued with Houston just because he like didn't want to really didn't want to be there and just went there for the money essentially and was unhappy in their system and has come back and he's been a competent center. Like, there's is there any other center that they could have just gotten? for nothing like that other than the contract that he's owed like i don't think there was like he actually no, i don't think there was he, they did acquire and, a good player and yeah they didn't need him at all it didn't seem to make sense but robert williams got hurt and hey if you're really gearing up for a championship run maybe having that type of death helps it'll he could be insurance if they move on from al horford at the end of the year it, so i think he's you know daniel tice has shown that he's not an out of the league type of guy he's a solid backup center so he's overpaid by like three or four million instead of 10 sure how do you feel about me having Pritchard too yeah I think that's usually he would have been my number three uh, that was a good one Pat Riley is my number one yep and and again we're just so many of these moves were made based on what happens in the playoffs and so Bob Myers could move it back into being number one at this point Riley hey that the Heat just lose in the second round which could happen they've got egg on their face and they just signed Jimmy Butler to this massive extension and Lowry and where the hell do you go from here daryl morey the sixers could get to the east finals or they could lose in the first round and that's going to determine whether this hardened trade was a, a good deal but at least for this year and but i want to i want to take a second to yeah. talk about the positive case for pat riley and yeah please i uh, an important element of this that you and i will focus on because of who we are but is 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 hard to it's it, it i think it i haven't heard it too much in the discourse yet is that pat riley part of how they were able to do despite being hard cap the decisions to get Kyle Lowry and PJ Tucker, and of course also take PJ Tucker away from one of their biggest threats and rivals, is they didn't have a lot of wiggle room, so they needed a lot from the lower end of their roster. And that was something you and I were intensely critical of during the offseason, and whether we're talking about offseason grades or just thinking about the Heat's viability, we both picked their under. And those were de- those were affirmative decisions on players that they were familiar with, more so than we were. But the idea that Max Struess and Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin and Yurtsevin and it could all step into larger roles and they all succeeded with flying colors. And so that was a part of the thesis that Pat Riley had. And I talked before about Arturis and how he did something that I didn't expect to work and it did. And he got credit for that. Pat Riley did that in spades, but also that made everything else possible. In the Kyle Lowry trade, they gave up Goran Dragic, who was important to the Heat, but I don't think they I don't think they missed they, they didn't miss him too dramatically this year. And Precious Chua, who is intriguing, but is still kind of a curio at this point in time. 
didn't give up any draft assets. And the biggest demerit for me with Riley is that Jimmy Butler extension, which I think is going to look a little bit gnarly towards the end. But it's very possible that that Jimmy Butler extension was what was necessary to get Kyle Lowry. And they, yeah, I don't want to focus as much on them having the best record in the East, but they were a great team in the East that despite having plenty of bad injury luck. No, I, I think that's totally reasonable. And yeah, there still are a, a lot of ways that these could change based uh, on what happens in the playoffs here. Not executive of the year, Rob Lincoln number one let's move on I mean yeah (laughs) Monty McNair now is my number two after the trade deadline I have McNair three and the Sabonis trade is Sabonis for Halliburton is is of course an important part of that but let's also not forget especially with the reporting that's out there that maybe he's being more insulated from Vivek than otherwise I'm skeptical of that I think it's macro managing not micromanaging that they also didn't trade Harrison Barnes and that is a that is an asset loss from the team it helped you know helps keep keep prop them up so it weakens it, it, it weakens their draft picks and it also the lack of direction of the team. They they didn't find a home for Sean Holmes. And now that situation is even more challenging. Of course, some of that is not the King's fault, of course. But my number two is Mitch Kupchak. And the missed opportunity that he has had over the last two years is a mix of the last two years. You know, the Gordon Hayward contract, stretching Batum. But Kupchak came into the 2021 offseason with what should have been a pretty clear understanding of what his team was and what they needed and that they had had this opportunity because they had some spending power and they had some draft picks to really make a difference there. And what he did was trade for Mason Plumley, who was a gap filler who didn't really solve what they needed. They drafted James Booknight, who I didn't like at all as a prospect and didn't really do anything for them this year at 11. And I don't know. I mean, I liked Moses Moody a lot more than Booknight. We hadn't watched a lot of film of the guys in this area. I'm not going to say they were dumb. They didn't draft Duarte or anything like that. But I will say that pick as we know it right now and things will change doesn't look great. They also traded a future first protected and all, all these weird encumberments to get Kai Jones, who then did didn't do anything for them. And yes, they did redeem some of it by getting Montrose Harrell, but Montrose Harrell didn't solve the problem at all. And the frustration for me with Kupchak is that A, he did very little right. They also didn't extend Miles Bridges, which now looks horrendous because they're going to have to pay him a lot more money. And there's a chance that he leaves, but that would be their own script. They, yeah. like, uh, it would uh, be to malpractice. be fair, I don't know that I would have gotten much above what their offer was. That's also, yeah, that's fair. That's fair too. Um, But so for Kupchak, the reason why I have him below McNair is that I thought there was a clear clear delineation of what they needed and that I mean the center that could provide the defensive identity and we don't know what the asking price was for Miles Turner or some of these others and maybe they can resolve this in the 2022 offseason but the Hornets are in despite having a lot of talent they're in a weird holding pattern unless they have dramatic continued internal improvement and I think a lot of that lays at his feet yeah uh, Ubre did help them a lot this year I sure I think with their cap space they did reasonably well they took on Plumley. they also got to move up from 57 to 37 they got jt thor with that yeah their draft looks awful i agree with you on on that but they did get better this year now a lot of that as you mentioned was internal improvement it wasn't the moves that he made and in fact you could even argue that those moves weren't great they they got Montrose harold for nothing that was pretty useful i thought also but yeah he wouldn't quite be down there for me um john horse to me hasn't done anything to get off of this list yet if they do win the championship again and i have picked them to get to the finals but i don't think it's going to be because i 
anything that he did necessarily i mean maybe grayson allen will have some amazing playoffs i'm not expecting that to happen necessarily so he would be my number three david griffin congratulations for getting off of this list as a result of your draft which herb jones at 35 trey murphy the third is starting to come on jose alvarado bringing him in another rotation guy to have three rookies like that in their rotation looks pretty good i still don't like some of the trade moves and i think that those could really come back and hurt them but cj has been really good for them they are probably favorites now though not guaranteed we'll see by the time you listen to this you'll probably know what happened but with pg out in the protocols they should have a good chance of actually making it into a best of seven that will help them a lot as well and also make the pain of giving up that draft pick not too bad although hilariously by making the playoffs they will now give up two draft picks instead of one this year or two first rounders instead of one because that 2025 milwaukee will go to portland instead of just the one pick and then some seconds to charlotte but yeah just because of that draft you're not going to be at the bottom of this list to me anymore and and this team has actually been pretty good when brandon ingram has played too even without zion so i think they you could see a little bit more of the vision of what he's trying to build it's just yeah sorry go ahead i didn't mean to yeah that's about it i mean I, i think i'm still not in love with what they did and their overall vision and the the win now aspect of it but at least they made a win now trade that caused them to win now (laughs) that's better than the kings Kings, right like they actually i didn't love the strategy but at least they executed it well i i have a couple others that i want to just i I think are 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 intriguing just to mention briefly leon rose i largely agreed with what happened what he did but so many things just went so much more poorly than i anticipated the kemba walker situation went off the rails pretty quickly uh, Nerlens Noel just didn't play this year. Burks did. Burks did better overall, and then Derrick Rose got hurt a bunch. So I don't blame him too much for like the injury part of that. And I like Quentin Grimes, so that's why he why he didn't get it. But the, also the Julius Randle extension, while understandable at the time, looks really bad now. So I, I thought that warranted. And then one that I again I think he's a good GM. But and we're not all the way to the end of the story because they technically can make moves before the league year ends. But Sam Presti basically sitting on that amount of cap space and it's going to functionally expire because of Shea's extension and not really doing anything with it, assuming they continue to do nothing with it. That's that's a concern. And then I don't know how yet how to feel about Josh Getty relative to the guys around him yet. But there's a chance that Giddy over Franz Wagner, Jonathan Kuming and others look shaky in time. All right, we still have a few more categories to get to, including the all-important sixth man of the year, which we'll probably get to next week on the end of some of these gamer episodes when we have a, a little bit lighter. Got to do all defense, all rookie, couple of our awards like best sophomore. So we'll get those to you next week, but it's time to go watch some basketball. We'll be back again later tonight to talk about these 8-9 games. Tell them. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.